Welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Hey, 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 everybody. Uh, welcome to podcast 157. What's that noise? Of course, I know what it is. Yep. Brad had his vibrator on. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry about that. (laughs) Well, you welcome to podcast 157 and I'm joined by none other than Brad Iverson, the Brad of all Brads. I picked you to be on 157 because I figured that's your uh, your 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 weight right now. Is that true? <laughs> I wish I would. I'd be pretty lean if that was the case. Yeah, that, I had, a, had about 20 more pounds. That looked like you back in those uh, bowling days of that picture you posted in your Hulkamania bowling shirt. Oh yeah, yeah. I was a little leaner back then, fresh out of the core, or they <laughs> didn't feed me as much. Was it that, or was it that they made you work? Probably a little bit of that, too. I didn't sit behind a desk all day then. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, I'm sure uh, I'm sure all the faithful Knock On Nation watchers are going to be pretty dang jacked uh, to have you as a guest. I'm pumped. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm super excited. It's a, I'll say that it's an honor to be, to be on here, for sure. Oh, come on. You're just, you're just <laughs> sucking up. Try not to get a little fanboyish, you know. <laughs> what was um, I was with Stump at the ATA show. Actually, I was when I was at that dinner with um, with man. It was a table of table of full blown assassins with uh, Green Tree and uh, Cole and Ben, and Remy, Andy, and Cam. It was it was a a table of of many many slain beasts and uh i had to show everybody the titanic video that you did that time after you left (laughs) i I still watch that every single time uh that i need a laugh i watch that freaking that's the most funny video ever um and you're gonna have to repost that just so that people could see it and i guess uh for those of you who watch it to understand the background last year i had the uh the knock on awards and had four awards one being knock to fork um which dayton holloway won um pretty much best social media uh cooking photos and then uh bronco ryan bronco won the um the veteran award uh, for pretty much being the best um, assist and help as we were doing, as I do live feeds and things like that, and just person who's constantly helping people, um, helping other members. And then I did uh, the social butterfly, which you easily won. <laughs> and I'm trying to think, what was the fourth one I did? Uh, let's see. Social butterfly. How much? Who all was there? Was it just us three, or did I have yeah. another? Yeah, I think that was. Just, I think that was it. Yeah, okay. Dayton and Ryan and myself. Well, I brought you guys here. We had a good old time, and uh, we did some shooting, some lessons, 
and pretty much just a thank you to you guys and uh yeah so you guys got to come by here and hang out and it was fun i'm i'm actually i've been i've kind of been i've been getting this set up in the back of my mind again i've got uh there's gonna be a few new winners but um yeah i'm kind of debating i'm debating something kind of fun i just got to get a date set forth um to announce this again and kind of kick it all off but it's it's going to be pretty interesting so uh at the end of that event you kind of posted the video set to a set to the titanic theme song of uh <laughs> of you leaving and it was freaking hilarious yeah i'm just glad that there was enough content for me to make something like that we had such a good time that i didn't have to look too hard to, to find something that i thought would have been funny well i'll tell you what i got to give a little background here so before we get into a podcast which i don't even know what we're going to talk about it was pretty sporadic um but brad if you haven't if you're not following Brad, you need to. It's simply the Brad of all Brads on Instagram. And if you go there, you're going to get to see several. Um, you're getting a little bit more serious here in your older age. Posting, <laughs> <laughs> posting, posting a lot of like cooking stuff, um, which is cool in itself. But uh, he's got some of the best freaking videos they were classic and uh well you haven't done it in a while but you need to you need to follow brad he's hilarious and honestly um i couldn't i couldn't have could never have picked a better winner of the social butterfly but what's hilarious about it is you need to watch some of his videos and there are some pretty funny ones some even involving your kids and what's hilarious what sharon and i laughed about the hardest was when we found out that your wife actually has no idea that, Br <laughs> <laughs> that the brad of all brad exists and that yep. and that you totally do all these little videos and crap on the sly and then totally just play it off like I don't know what you're talking about. Like your wife has no idea that the Brad of all Brad exists and is like this this social media sensation to the non nation. <laughs> yeah, I, I think she's starting to get a little a little curious about what's going on because a couple of the neighbors have kind of like they're like, oh, what's this video you posted on on Instagram? I don't even know. You know, or, or I'll see somebody that I know will be like, oh, so and so followed you, and I'm like, oh no, I know them personally. Now they're gonna know. <laughs> then they're gonna be like they're gonna say something around my wife, and then cat's gonna be out of the pack. Oh yeah, that's freaking hilarious. <laughs> Mainly yeah. because she's just gonna she's gonna be like, who did I marry? <laughs> <laughs> I wanna I wanna know what would be funnier to all of us is to have a camera in the house to where we could see how you act like when she's there. That's what I that's what I want to know is <laughs> what is the real Brad like. Yeah. Oh, that's it's it's probably the bread of all breads times ten, but <laughs> she's just she's not used to me being social with it. Oh yeah. So she, I mean, she's she's a trooper. I have to put up with me. <laughs> <laughs> well, we need to uh, we need to come up with the next video for you. You need to do a you need to do a big one. You need to be thinking because I'm gonna. There's some people that are 
getting pretty creative with their social media skills. So when I have a full-blown contest to, to be the determining factor of who's going to win this social butterfly award this year, you better have your A game. Yeah, I've got a couple. I've got I've got some filming done. I just need to put some uh, some finishing touches on a couple of them, and then I don't know if they're. See, I, I feel like I've already peaked a little bit with with that Titanic one and a few other ones. Come on, you can't say that. <laughs> you feel like you've uh, already peaked. You can't say that. Yeah, I'm just kidding. It just takes me like I told you when I was up there because you're like, oh man, just do something funny because that's all you sell on on Instagram and stuff, and it's like. I need time to think to be funny. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't put you on the spot. Yeah, because it just doesn't go well. But. Yeah, well, I've I've been there too. I've I've had times where you know people immediately want me to do something, and you kind of yeah, you end up getting kind of stage fright. But uh, yeah, where I failed is I I should have I should have had some content ready, almost like I was preparing for like an open mic night or something. <laughs> well. I don't know. I think some of the funniest stuff is when it's organic. I love the one that you did um, with the T-shirt. That was one of my one of my favorites too. Um, oh, the the evolution the, one. The knock life. Yeah, yeah, that was so funny because, man, we got some we got some people that just didn't see it as a joke. I mean, yeah, that's kind of a bummer. And to be quite to be totally one hundred percent transparent, like I didn't make that one as like a rebuttal to the people that were kind of getting their their feelings hurt a little bit. That was just kind of like, I wanted to find, so I was scouring the internet trying to find somebody that was saying like nice shirts. Like if like, Oh yeah, thanks. But that was the only one I could find where she was kind of like offended by it. So I was like, ah, I can roll with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was perfect. It just happened to work out though. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, I wanted to do a podcast with you because, um, which I kind of, for those of you listening, this was very impromptu, by the way, uh, we really don't have any subjects in mind. Um, there was one subject I've been asked several times, um, which I was going to cover, but I actually forgot to get the name of the book. So I might not even be able to answer it, but I just wanted to call talk with you and kind of get on some subjects you've kind of started to to do some indoor shooting um Mm -hmm. and i think you're maybe struggling a little bit based off what i'm seeing i haven't actually talked to you about it Mm -hmm. um so i just thought it'd be fun to do a podcast where i get you on and let you fire questions at me um for kind of whatever you want to talk about or subjects that other people talked about and then hopefully i can answer them Okay. So yeah, this is, um, I, I guess we I can go into the long story of it. Like I, so this is my first year really shooting indoor to, to try to be competitive at it. Um, last year I dabbled in it just a little bit. Um, but this year my goal was to at least start going to local shoots and maybe something at the state level. So yeah, this is, this is the first year that I've really, um, tried to get into indoor. I shot a little bit of 3d, Starting a few years ago, nothing really competitive, just some local tournaments, but um, kind of taking your advice of, you know, putting myself into those uncomfortable situations of of competition, I think is a good thing. Mainly because I'm, I'm a bow hunter first, and then I wanted to get a target to be, you know, more prepared throughout the year for hunting season. So, so yeah, this is my first year being competitive, and what I'm finding um, is I am progressing, but what 
indoor archery really, really, I think shows at least me is, is how finite the small things are that make a big difference downrange when it comes to what you're actually scoring. So that in, in, in and of itself is somewhat of a battle because I'm not aware of those little tiny things that make sense. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I'm missing an X because if it was just a small inconsistency of my back half or something I did with my release hand or, you know, did my bow juke or what's the deal. So, so yeah, going through some of that stuff would be a big help. I think for me. Well, do you find yourself trying to like during your round, are you trying to process all that mentally? Yeah, I, 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 I find myself being able to stick to a to a shot routine for the most part, but um, what I kind of fall victim to is if if I'm not hitting where I think I should be hitting, and I start like mid round, I'll start, I'll I'll well I'll try a different little like a smidge different hand position with my release, or I'll try um, maybe trying something different with my rear, rear elbow, and then you know that just I think that opens up the door a lot to you know, just poor scoring rounds because I'm not being consistent with everything. So I think finding a way to know that I'm doing things correctly and just live with that um, would be a big help. And I, you did answer one of my questions that I, I constantly mess with the position of my release within my hand constantly. Either I, I use the casing of the, the edge of the casing to uh, to kind of feel that the release is in the same spot every time. So it's like, okay, well some days I'll have it more towards the, I'll say the, the middle, the middle knuckle, or I'll have it um, more closer to the, to the end knuckle towards the end of my finger. And I'll constantly kind of change that trying to see if I'll hold better or I'll feel like the release is easier to fire one way. So I kind of feel like that's a constant thing that's changing. And then when you, re- you answered that question um, for me last podcast or two podcasts ago, yeah. kind of going through your, your process of how you know that it's in the same spot. And what I've found is that kind of really helped me as far as knowing where, cause I, I tried it. Okay. That, that 300 round that, that you shot on YouTube with a few years ago, I've watched that thing probably a hundred times and I could never really figure out where, you are getting your, your release hand. So I'm, I'm just trying to mimic what you're doing. So you answering that kind of put that mystery to bed, so to speak. That makes sense. Yep. So that I feel like helped me immensely um, where it's like, okay, I no longer, I know, I know where John's doing it. I'm trying to mimic John. Not to sound like, you know, oh, yeah, I guess so. I mean, that's, that's fine if I sound that way, but so I'm trying to mimic you. So it's, that's, that's like one thing I've, that I've put to bed. I no longer mess with that. And, Lo and behold, the last two rounds that I shot were my highest scores on both five spot and in Vegas. So it's a good thing. The last two that you've shot have been that way. Yeah, yeah. Since since I had that kind of mental confirmation of okay, I need to put my hand here. This is how it's supposed to feel like now. Um, uh, yeah, those are my two highest scoring rounds as far as X counts concerned, and actually. Um, that 450 rounds, my eyes 450 round after, after that too. Okay. Well, one thing that I would like to talk to you about is, um, there's kind of a really fine line 
between being educated enough to understand your equipment, but then also not being educated enough to where you start trying to overthink things for yourself. And this is a, this is a very, very important, um, topic because this happens in a lot of sports and not just archery. And I've seen it actually derail a lot of top level shooters because, um, there's so many, there's so many shooters that once they start to learn how to work on their own equipment, um, they almost start to overthink some of the things that really don't have a major effect or a major impact on, um, on score if you really didn't think about it, but it does have an impact when it comes to the fact that mentally, um, you're focusing on things that aren't as important as other things while you're shooting on the line. And truthfully, there's a couple names that come to mind for me. And I know this because, you know, keep in mind, I worked, I worked for a bow manufacturer for a long time. I worked for Matthews. I managed pro staffs. Um, you know, I still manage some pro staffs now, but I managed pro staff, you know, at Matthews on a couple different levels. And, um, you know, I've seen a lot of the best shooters in the world be at the point where they may not know how to work on their equipment at all. And they have to come to the factory and I would set bows up or build bows for people. And obviously I like to educate while I do that. So, you know, I don't want to just always do it for you, do it for you, because I feel like there's certain times where if, if a coach isn't there, um, some athletes have a problem with if they don't know enough um, to feel confident, if something is possibly going wrong, they just completely derail because they don't know how to do like simple system checklists. You know, they just freak out because there isn't a coach there to do it for them. So as a coach, there's a couple different boundaries that I like to not only establish and build, but also boundaries that I need to break down. One boundary that I like to, to build is I like to build a boundary that lets the student or the archer or the competitor separate themselves from me and feel confident like there needs to be a barrier there and at the same time I need to tear down the barrier that makes them um, you know I don't want them to be worried about touching their own stuff and ruining it you know you need to know some of those things but you also have to create this separation between are you overthinking something that's having a negative impact on your performance and that's a pretty fine line and it's a line that I've seen derail a lot of big competitors one of the persons um that I that come to mind right away uh well there's actually now as soon as I thought of it now there's like a dozen that are popping into my head but um Ken Likens was a 3D shooter that was probably one of the best he was one of the best in the late 90s um he 
started to learn to work on his own stuff and just really started to to micro analyze stuff and you know he started to tear releases apart he got to the point where he realized how to open a release how to clean a release or how to change his springs then all of a sudden he started to want to have more control on what that spring did so he starts you know drilling and tapping the freaking release and putting something in there so he can adjust the spring differently and then all of a sudden I've you know I've seen well Tim Gillingham when he shot Matthews he would call and say that he's got this bow that was not shooting and he'd be all pissed off about it and he'd send a bow back and I'd get this thing and it looked like a freaking beaver had <laughs> had like taken his limbs and sanded or filed his limbs bigger so he could then take the bearings that he wanted in his cam and put them in there and put them in there super poorly and it just you know the the efficiency the let off the holding weight the tolerances within the limbs pretty much the overall safety of the whole bow has just gone down the toilet and in the end it's like okay dude let's just go back to you taking this bow that someone that's way smarter than you has completely perfected and put into the market. Let's just take this and shoot it like the other 10,000 pros out there that are shooting world level scores with this machine that isn't jacked with. And it would be like, okay, okay. And then within the next tournament, all of a sudden, you know, and I can tell you the one thing that I think derails a pro faster than anything is when they get their first drill and tap kit. Because the first thing they do is drill out the cable track on a cam and put a set screw in there so that they can adjust their freaking let off or their hold. And it, you know, it's like it all starts with just drilling out that cam, putting that set screw in there. Next thing you know, it's you know, it just one thing leads to another, and the next thing you know, you you focus, you've put so much time and effort into these modifications that you're starting to neglect what's most important, and that that's literally the fundamentals and basis of the shot routine. So, like for you, even though you're sitting there and you're really worrying about that, you know, you're talking about. You're literally talking about a half inch on your fingers, left or right. Yep. And that half inch left or right, when it comes to, like, if I took a hand on a shooting machine and moved that release left or right within that knuckle group, um, it's not going to affect accuracy. Now, it may affect accuracy how you feel and it's affecting what's going on in your head so when you're thinking about that all the time it's taking it's literally taking conscious thought effort off something that's more important which would be you know the shot routine you're focusing on the all these micros and you know there's there's people that are followers um you know that hashtag knock on all the time and knock on nation and I look and they're just constantly playing with something or changing something. And it just seems like guys that have an engineering background or guys that are just have like an OCD type thing, they are the worst at 
always wanting to change and micro do something. Whereas with me, I'm like so stripped back to the basics of keep it simple. And I want to do that because I want my students to be able to, you know, like when, like when Bailey came, there was a few very, very minimal things that I changed with Bailey, um, based on some of the misses that I was seeing her have, um, during a few rounds that we shot together. So, you know, I made a, some simple, um, I addressed that simplicit, you know, with the simplicit process, told her exactly what she needed to do and pretty much checked, checked over her whole setup, checked over how she's had her bow build and how the setup was, and then really just told her, um, okay, all this looks good. I gave her the confirmation of this does look good, told her what I liked about it. And honestly, she's, you know, she's got enough, um, setup sense to where if she goes to a tournament and all of a sudden she's, you know, she shoots four shots and they're totally low, you know, she's got the mindset where she can look down, she can look at her cam mark. And all of a sudden if she realized, whoa, that cam mark is now behind the limb, you know, she can say, oh crap, if that's behind the limb, my knock point's higher, I'm hitting low, something's moved. You know, maybe you had a stringer cable stretch, maybe you've had something, you know, something slip. But either way, you know, you can have s simple, small references to where you can know if in fact it is not you that's making the mistake. But you're not sitting there thinking about all these super, super fine details all the time. When it comes to, to shooting indoors, you know, I feel like, um, I feel like between you and Bronco, just based off some of the keywording that I pick up just in your language, um, a lot of times I feel like you guys are making, um, the rounds harder than what they actually are. I feel like you're almost making it, um, you know, making a 300 seem a lot more difficult than it is because I can tell you, you know, yeah, hand position in the release, um, depending, you know, honestly, you bending your knuckles or fisting the release is going to have more of an impact than it being anywhere within that row, whether it's a half inch one way or a half inch another way, or the rocker position. So in other words, if you're squeezing tighter with your ring finger and index, or your ring finger and middle finger on one shot versus squeezing more, um, or having the release rolled more forward, like if you have more index pressure on the next shot, those will have impacts more so than what you're asking. Um, but I feel like a lot of times, if you guys, um, and honestly, based on the, sh when I saw you guys shoot here, I really feel like, and I don't want to take anything away from, from Ryan at all, but I feel like when I just look at posture and setup, um, you actually have a better opportunity to shoot higher scores than the rest of us. And the other thing too is, you know, Archers that are shorter in stature, I really feel like have an advantage when it comes to, you know, your arrow is being affected by the string for a shorter period of time. 
um, the power stroke shorter, so your arrow is clearing the string faster, so you actually have less time to where those mistakes will show up um, on the arrow because obviously the string isn't traveling as far with the arrow connected to it. Um, and then also when it comes to like outdoor, you know, when you're shorter and stockier and lower to the ground, you're going to be blown around less than when you're, you know, six and a half foot tall. And, you know, you're, when I'm at full draw and the end of my stabilizer is 50 inches out in front of me, um, you know, you just, you have more surface area being blown around and the same true with the projectile. Um, people that I shot against that had little 25 and 26 inch arrows, they were always not having to aim as far off on the target as I did um, with having a, a much longer um, arrow shaft and much more, you know, surface area to be affected by the wind. Um, so I feel like you have a you have a lot more things going for you than what than what you feel like and i feel like um you know if if those indoor rounds truly are important to you you just you kind of have to commit more time to really focusing specifically on those rounds um you know if you're only able to do it two or three times a week um, which I don't know. How many times do you feel like you're able to actually prep for something like that? Uh, <clears throat> right now, I, I just have league on Tuesdays, and it's not spot league. We have indoor 3D league, so I, I show up early to shoot spots and then go downstairs and shoot like indoor paper 3D. But So I really only get like actual 20-yard practice once a week, twice if I'm lucky. If there's like a local tournament or something like that, I can go sneak down real quick and go shoot. But um Aside from that, it's usually just reps in my basement, which is 10 yards. Well, one thing I can tell you is I shot 3D professionally for probably six to seven years before I ever shot my first Vegas 300. Do you feel like that 3D was a better preparation for, for indoor or vice versa? No. No, I feel like, I feel like learning, learning to shoot um learning to shoot spots first um definitely teaches a lot um but it's funny because if you learn spots first i almost question whether or not you can be as good of a 3d shooter as if you started out that way because what you know it's all it's all training of the mind so if you're constantly training your mind how to aim and pull through and focus on a spot and then all of a sudden you completely take that away and you're having to literally learn to shoot aiming at nothing but a black object or a silhouette or a shadow or you're trying to learn how to aim off of another arrow in order to hit something that you um that you're aiming at then um then you know, that that's hard in itself too. So it's difficult. What I learned was when I shot 3D, my focus 100% when I started shooting 3D was I wanted to be a better bow hunter. So I really focused on just shooting 3D and I spent, and I can tell you when I wanted to go and shoot my first even round as a 3D shooter, in other words, you know, to be able to go shoot 400 or um 
you know, 400 plus scores, I learned really quick that I had to focus just as much time on judging yardage and looking at targets as I did actually shooting. Um, and once I started doing that and once I made the investment, you know, even as a 3D shooter, when I started, the only time I would really get to shoot 3Ds is when I went to the tournament on the weekend. I would go to a tournament, I would shoot 3Ds, um, then then I would go home and I would just be shooting at a, a morel bag target in my backyard and, you know, sitting there and shooting 20, 30, 40, 50 yards at a, you know, at, at a circle on a burlap sack. And then all of a sudden you go out and you're trying to, to learn to shoot something a lot different on the weekend and it wasn't until I just made the investment of buying some used targets in an IBO shoot to where all of a sudden I started realizing you know I would go to a tournament and I would you know after the first year I'd find myself saying well I shot a shot awesome I racked up a bunch of 12s but man when I got to that turkey I shot a five you know and then after keeping notes I realized that um that the turkey and the mountain lion were two targets that I shot the most fives on and they were two targets that I didn't have. So once I, then that next year I saved up to buy those two targets. And then I found out that the target that was then my weakest was a new target that they brought into the events that again, I didn't have. So it was just crystal clear to me that if you're not able to prepare and practice on something that you're seeing all the time, um, it's just, you know, it's you're, you're practicing, but you're not truly preparing. So I had to learn to accept the fact to where, and honestly, one thing that really helped me was I started to just recognize the and come to terms with the things that I wasn't actually um, competing with or come to terms with that I didn't have certain targets and I would play it safe on those targets. You know, even if I walked up to a target, a turkey that I, you know, knew was, was, uh, you know, well, I'm pretty sure it's only 30 yards. I wouldn't, I would totally just aim center 10. Um, even on the mountain line was the same thing for a while. It's like, okay, I can see that 12. It's super tempting, but I misjudge this thing all the time. I need to be smart about it. Um, and I kept a lot of notes. So then once I started to kind of get, you know, I, I just, I honestly didn't get tired of 3d shooting. I got tired of, I got tired of the travel and I got tired of going to the same places all the time. Like to me, I just got burned out with that. And that's a big reason why, you know, I just decided to stop competing um, in professional 3D because it was just, you know, the same five ASAs, the same three IBOs, the same two world championships. It just it just got so systematic to where, you know, when you're going to a town and you pretty much know who the manager is in the hotel to talk to them and say, hey, can I get a room for two weekends from now? You know, I just, I was just burned out on that. So when I started shooting spots, again, I was just totally honest with myself with the fact of um, I know that I'm capable of shooting 30 good arrows, but I just was not used to, 
I wasn't used to shooting at the same distance all the time. I wasn't used to shooting that many, that number of arrows in that particular cadence or that particular rhythm. And I really, you know, honestly, it was super hard for me on the Vegas face because of the colors. It took me a very long time before my eye started to actually get comfortable with yellow and red. Um, and I think that's something that doesn't get talked about a lot. I could shoot um, I could shoot 60x300 rounds on an NFA black and white face, but I could not shoot a 300 on a gold and red and blue face. So, you know, again, the size of the 10 ring is the same size as the X ring on the black and white face. So I know that I could string together the arrows to do it, but for whatever reason, I just had this mental block of, I couldn't do it. So I had to just start doing it every single day. And like I've talked about, it just becomes a form of acclimation. And honestly, I know that you get frustrated when you don't go out and shoot a 300. But what I'm here to tell you is I don't really feel like if you're if you're a, a new archer, if you're an intermediate archer, or even if you're an above intermediate archer, um, it just isn't practical for you to assume that if you shoot, you know, well, I mean, just look at it as if you went to indoor league every day for a year, you've only shot 50 rounds, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, archers that are going to Vegas and shooting shooting that, they may shoot 50 rounds in two to three weeks. And, you know, I can tell you a lot of them, you know, I've had years where it's taken me three or four weeks before I can start pounding 300s. And then, you know, once you're in that zone, it just gets to the point where, you know, it's just so systematic because the good thing about indoor rounds or 300s or 450 rounds, the good thing about them is they're so repetitive. You're just literally learning muscle memory, just sitting there and just pounding this one spot, pounding this one spot, pounding this one spot. And one, it gets to the point where it's actually mentally harder to sit there and do it like three full rounds or four full rounds without being bored to death. But the problem with that is people that just do that, all of a sudden you get them outside and they start to shoot at 40 yards where their elevation is a little bit different. And now all of a sudden the wheels come off again because you're not aiming at one fixed location at 18 meters. So just, you know, that timing starts to change um so you really have to just be honest with yourself and if you are i really feel like you're gonna shoot better because you're not setting um an unachievable expectation on yourself because the reality is if you're going and you're literally going to a league where there's going to be a shitload of distractions there honestly um 
you know, people are going to be saying hi, getting their bows out of their case. Someone's probably going to shoot some arrows into your target and piss you off. I mean, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing's happening and you're trying to, to shoot this round. So, you know, and obviously you went and it's great that you shot your best 450 round. Um, but it's also important that you don't go to, you know, a tournament and you literally haven't practiced in six days and have the expectation to shoot, you know, to shoot a 450 or shoot a 300. You have to, it takes a lot of experience to get to the point where those, those motions are, are systematic. You know, I can, I can normally limp through it for maybe one round, um, but honestly, if I had to shoot, you know, if I had to go to a tournament and shoot 60 arrows at a tournament pace, I just haven't done it enough right now to pr- where I would expect very much of myself. You know, even if I can do it at home, my pace at home is so different compared to going to a tournament where they call you to the line, you shoot, then you have to sit down, you wait for line B to go up, you know, then you wait for them to shoot, then they say pull, everyone goes down, you got four minutes of scoring, you come back, then you switch to where line B is now shooting first, and now I'm waiting. It's like to shoot at that pace is almost a whole different type of acclimation in itself. And that's why, you know, when people say, why don't you just, you know, show up and go to one tournament? I honestly don't feel like I could be worth a dang going to one tournament because when you have guys that are literally shooting on the tours like I did and my tournament every single weekend is a professional event tournament, you're so acclimated to performance and really all you're doing is packing your bow case, flying home, probably taking Monday off, pounding pounding practice Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, jumping on a plane Friday and being full blown into into competition again with literally two days of rest within your week. Other than that, you're competing for money, competing with the best in the world and you know and getting in your numbers for practice. So it's really hard to bounce in and out of that. And if I did right now, I wouldn't have very big expectation upon myself either. So I think if you guys want to do better, I think you should you know, focus a lot more on the process, a lot less on the micro details, and also uh, less on the performance. And I think, I think you're going to have better outcome overall. Cool. Yeah, that was that was something that I know 100% got me into trouble um, at, at the start of the indoor league season. Um, just because, <clears throat> so I, I, I left off last year being able to, to shoot like a 305 spot round, and that was kind of my expectation going, just coming right back into this season. Even though I just got a new bow and blah, 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 blah. I was pretty disappointed in myself that it took me so long to finally break the, bar- the barrier to get a 300 in a five spot round. So, but once, like everybody says, once you get the first one, then they, you know, it starts raining 300s. That's, you know, that was unfortunately the case for me again this year where, or not again, but this year where I went into this season knowing that I shot 300s, not necessarily a 60X, but I was shooting 300, you know, upper 30, low 40 X counts and stuff like that. And that's kind of what I expected of myself right off the bat this year. And when I finally 
I feel like kind of finally let go of, okay, it's just going to happen when it happens is when, you know, things started actually not instead of that, that arrow 57, when I would start to kind of get it in my head, it's like, Oh, you know, I'm getting ready to do it. It would be just out, but you know, it just kind of kept that, that 57th arrow, arrow, you know, just in. So, so now I, I, I was a hundred percent guilty of this, um, last week where, um, it was going into like the last three ends. I'm like, oh, okay, if I, if I can clean these last three ends, I want to, I want to be, you know, plus 50 X's for the first time. And then, you know, things kind of with the crap from there and ended up with a 48, which is still my highest, my highest X count. But had I been able to keep my, my mental game together, I think it would have been a different story. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I've, I missed shooting, uh, a 600 indoor round, um, inner 10 indoor round at the, at our nationals one year because of that same exact thought process. Um, I was just kind of, I actually didn't even want to go to the tournament. I got talked into going to the tournament very last minute. I wanted to shoot outdoors cause it was supposed to be a 50 something degree day in freezing Wisconsin on this weekend. And someone was, had flown in to go and really was trying to talk me into going. I really didn't want to. And then in the end, they talked me into going. And I just was there shooting with no expectation, Had could not give a shit about what was happening. And next thing I know, they look at me and they're like, you get these next three. And I said, what do you mean? They're like, you get these next three, you get a world record. And I was like, what? And they're like, yeah, dude. You freaking hit these next three, you got a world record. And honestly, if that wouldn't have been said to me, I think I'm certain I would have it. But as soon as I started thinking about, you know, I need to get these next three, all of a sudden just everything tightened up just just enough to where, you know, I was almost focusing too much on you know, my movement too much on finger pressure, too much on everything. And, you know, I ended up just getting tight and I ended up just over aiming and literally kind of waiting or making shots happen rather than letting shots happen. And, you know, it ended up costing me. And that's not the only time it's happened. It's, um, I, I kind of feel like I'd probably have a black belt in screw ups. Um, because you know that was that was one thing i've always been harder on myself of saying you know if you if you get these next three you're going to be in the final if you get these next two you know last arrow you know shoot this and it's a it's a world i mean i've been in world record positions i would say probably 10 times and never came through with it because because I ended up having to think about it or I, or I did think about it and it's nobody's fault, but my own. Um, and you know, that's why I'm such a big advocate of, you know, just focusing on the process, um, of, you know, kind of what gets you there and what got you there. And that's why I'm also such a big, big advocate of saying, you know, you have to practice how you play. There's, there's certainly, there's certainly prodigies out there. I mean, um, you know, you get someone like a Jesse Broadwater or a Dan McCarthy, um, and you could have them shooting 
three D's six months of the year and take them to a 300 and their likelihood of them shooting a 300 is crazy high, but I'll promise you it's not going to be as tight as if, you know, you give Danny three weeks of really honing in on just the indoor faces. You know, you might see his, his, the number of X's improve, you know, two or 300%. So, you know, you just have to kind of look at the same thing for yourselves. And if you're not able to, if you're not able to put the time in, then it just comes down to expectation. I mean, I know right now if someone challenged me to a tournament where we had to shoot a hundred arrows, I, I would probably not bet on myself because it's just going to be tough. And I know that this year, you know, I've made this commitment, um, to Cabela's in Easton to do this total archery challenge event with some of the people that, um, that went in and were lucky to win the bids on that or whatever. Um, so with that, with that commitment to them, it's not just, you know, when Easton calls and says, would you be willing to do this? Um, I know that it just, it, to me, that doesn't mean three days. To me, that's that's probably at least a full month um, of me actually training for that event as if I would be training to go to an, an event. You know, that's going to be, you know, f- at least five days a week shooting that full number of arrows, training at all those magnitudes of distance, and I'll definitely do, you know, research on some of that. I'll probably, I'll probably find a place with, as close to that terrain as I can so that I can start working on shots with elevation so I can get my hand above my shoulder or above my head and then also make shots where my arms are or my front arm is, you know, below my waist um, to prep. And, you know, it'll be a month of prep for that. And that's that's just otherwise I would go there. And even if I'm able to shoot um, three inch groups at 100 yards in the backyard, there's just no way that I would expect to be able to do that once I change my elevation, even 15 degrees. It doesn't take much. That's just the reality of how it goes. And that's why I think um, having diversity makes you a better all-around archer. You know, I think being able to shoot, practice some with a slight decline and then practice some with a slight incline and, you know, having times a year where you really just take all the elements out. That's why I don't like indoor shooting. I don't enjoy it. Um, but I love it from the point of view is I'm able to eliminate a bunch of outside, um, elements that I encounter when I'm shooting outdoors, like wind, uneven footing, um, different elevation to the actual target. And I can just focus on pulling through, my draw cycle, raising that arm, drawing back, coming into my anchor, bringing my tip of my nose down so I'm in my peep, checking my level, centering the pin, and starting that motion of pulling through. And I just literally get into the that cadence of just doing that and just working on that cadence and working on that cadence. And honestly, that's why I posted that um, I posted that round um, the other day. I posted that live feed. Uh, round to the YouTube channel, um, which was, I don't know, I think it was the end of a 596 that I shot. You could look for it. It's just 
I, I named it John Dudley Indoor Training Live uh, December 17. Um, if you want to watch and it's just, it's, you know, it's not a production quality video. It's literally a live feed that I did. Um, and honestly I did the live feed just because I wanted to add some pressure to myself, um, of having, you know, I felt like I'd shot a lot of, um, 300s myself in practice and I was getting a little bit bored. So I just wanted to add a little bit of pressure there, uh, just because I know that I have a few events and a few seminars that I'm doing privately to where I'm going to have to shoot in front of people. So, you know, again, I didn't want to show up and have not done that. So that was kind of a little piece of my acclimation too. So indoor shooting is critical for timing, cadence, and rhythm, and draw cycle. And then, you know, I think outdoor shooting is really um, the place where you really start to develop kind of the most, I don't know, kind of your upper elite qualities of being a really, really fine archer. You know, I think 3D is kind of the intermediate stage to that. And then field archery, and especially tougher field archery um, with better angles and stuff, that's when you really, really start to kind of tweak yourself out. Yeah, I think this year, like if, if anybody's ever read any of my indoor posts or whatever, like I always say at the end, like I love indoor and I think that at least right now is I kind of feel like I'm still in the discovery phase of like what what is my best setup as far as, you know, just my entire shot sequence, what works, what doesn't, what my exact draw length is, what, you know, what my hand placement works best for me or whatever, which I guess, you know, now that we've spoken a little bit can actually get me into trouble. But I feel like they're, it, it's showing me what is going to prepare me best for everything else once we get, at least when it comes to, um, you know, just being very precise with my shot process, when I do go down and start shooting 3d outdoor, once we move outdoors and things like that. So right now I think, um, which I guess I kind of could lead into a question. I kind of had a jot down right here is like, how do you, so I'm, I'm constantly, I feel like I'm, I'm chasing like a Holy grail of, of being able to, to like, I know I'm never going to be able to hold perfectly still. I, I know that I'm, and I'm okay with, with movement. But I always feel like there's something I can do to hold better because right now it's like if if I have a bad juke or a bad bob, you know, I'm outside the the white or I'm outside the yellow, and then you know if if that kind of happens while I'm starting to pull, then it's like oh well, you know, I stop pulling, and then for this past weekend where I was actually on a clock, it's like I can't afford to let down three times and and do that. So it's um, how do you know when like you're outside of the discovery phase and that's just as good as you're going to hold. And that's just how, that's just what you roll with. Well, I guess a few things. Um, one is I'm really, um, I don't know. I'm, I'm starting to, I'm starting to really understand that the older you get, <laughs> you kind of just start to have these hiccups um, and you know, you kind of hope that you can minimize hiccups. There's times where, you know, I can tell you, I definitely don't hold as steady now as I did when I was in my thirties. And it's hard to say if I held better in my twenties than I did in my thirties. Um, just because my shot, my shot was so different in my twenties than it was in my thirties. And even now that I'm in my forties, it seems like, it seems like I just learned my body just over the 
course of doing it has just become more efficient with, you know, drawing and, and that sort of thing. And I've also, honestly, I've become less focused on how much movement you can have and still have arrows go in the middle. Um, so I'm just, I don't know. I feel like I'm the worst person to ask when it comes to steadiness and <laughs> stabilizers because I'm not a fan of stabilizer weight. Um, there, you know, I think there's a point where you go too far and I see people's form start to change. And there's actually been some people that have sent me some private messages. I kind of looked back through some of their, their pictures and kind of told them my opinion of, you know, Hey, here's some of the things that I see. And they're like, well, I just can't adjust myself that way. And I had to tell them the only way you're gonna is physically, you know, you're not physically capable of that kind of weight being held out in front of you like that without changing your body posture so you have to minimize that and you know honestly nine times out of ten those people come back and say you know just i don't like the feeling of that light bow it just feels so much different and you know they they just don't like it and i say well can you stick with it for a week and then next thing you know you know they start saying holy cow, this actually, I'm shooting a lot better now. I feel like I'm able to not hitch my hip. I'm able to keep my shoulder down and I'm able to keep my front shoulder over my front foot. And, you know, it takes some time and you're going to, you're going to realize you're going to have some float, but really draw length. Um, and then, you know, just learning stabilizer length that really suits you and not all, um, you got to remember, not all movement in the bow, or or I should say not all movement of the sight is your actual bow arm. Um, I've seen some setups, I was working with um, some teams in, um, in uh, Switzerland that, and it wasn't uh, Swiss archers either, some German archers to where, you know, they were just saying, you know, I just, my pins always moving left and right. My pins always moving left and right. So, you know, I actually started doing video over the top of the archer and the left and right movement in the pin isn't from the actual arm moving left and right. It's from just the torsional sway of that system. And some bows that have a very high let off to where you don't have a lot of holding weight. And then some systems that have a lot more torsional instability or torsional twist. Um, you know, and then if you have those two things already happening and then put weights out on the end far away from that center point, your sway um, starts to just magnify and you know, an object in motion remains in motion. Um, so that swing is actually just from the torque of that system moving around, but you're seeing it in your sight and not realizing that the front arm is actually stationary. It's the actual bow that's pivoting left and right as it's sitting on the hand. So you kind of have to be careful about that too, recognizing how much of that movement um, is actually from the stabilizer. I remember back when uh, when Ulmer shot, 
and this is um, this is back in the mid '90s, maybe. He had this stabilizer. You know, back then stabilizers were a lot different than they are now. And he had this old aluminum sta- stabilizer, and you know, he liked having the weight. Um, he had, you know, he, I, I don't think he had more weight than I did. He may have had a little bit more, but if he would ever draw back and kind of have a little bobble, his stabilizer was so floppy back then that once that weight started going up and down, it would just, his whole system would be going up and down and he would actually have to let down and kind of raise his, you know, set his bow down and get the vibration out, you know, that bobbing out of the stabilizer itself and come back up. And that's why eventually the the industry just worked towards these really stiff stabilizers to where you don't have that object in motion to where you're actually, your bobbing motion really isn't your hand more so than the different weights or the system of the bow itself. So um, you have to make sure that that's correct. And then draw length and like I've talked about a lot of times in the past is taking that time to play with different pulling points um, in relation to where your knock, your knocking point is set up on the string itself um, for a pulling point. So on some bows, um, you know, depending on where the actual grip position is within the riser, sometimes they're put in the center, sometimes they're below center. But your pulling point on your string, up or down, even you know, even a few mil can make a difference. So that's why you know I tell people to take your setup. Don't necessarily worry about grouping, um, but just take your setup and you know move you know remove your knocking points and, and your D loop, and just move it down like you know one knocking point, one like knock height or the width of a knock, move your whole system down that much and, you know, retie everything, slide your peep down a little bit, you know, go a quarter inch down, go a quarter inch up from where you are now and see if all of a sudden you pull back one time and you just feel like it's sitting so much better because there is you know, it's a triangle and there is a spot where it naturally is going to sit better and point better. Uh, but you also have to kind of make sure that you're not just trying to over aim because that's another problem too. I think, um, steadiness, a lot of people would be surprised at the movement that I see in my pin because when they just watch a video, they're like, your stabilizer is like a rock. Well, maybe my stabilizer is, but what I'm seeing (laughs) through my eyeball doesn't look like that. You know, um, there's definitely movement. And I think there's a lot of top archers that are even more solid than me. Um, But, you know, everybody's just a little bit different. And you can also look, you know, another side to the argument is, you know, there's, um, for example, Camilla, who used to shoot for Denmark. Um, you know, she had this, and I've seen several archers with it and I actually don't know what it's related to, but when they're under tension, they actually have this tremor. Um, and someone that used to be on some of the first seasons of the show, Thomas, um, 
he actually had that shake, you know, and I, that's why we, his nickname was Shaky McFitz because he would get to full draw. And I mean, he's totally lean, strong, shot every day. It wasn't a strength issue, but when he had pressure at full draw, and, I, and honestly, it happened after he had an injury to his hand, um, but he would just sit there and, and kind of shake, you know, both. He would look like he was totally nervous and Camilla shot the same way. But if you look at how many professional events and super high scores that Camilla shot, you can see that she just continued to pull through and just let that shake happen and just continue to be as steady as she could with that shake and centralize it within the center of the target as she pulled through her shot. And she was able to be a super high level competitive archer, even though she had continual shakes. So I don't think a dead solid uh, bow arm is, is necessary. I think things like front hand position on the riser, I think facial pressure, and I think the follow through of your release hand um, are probably some of the, the much more important aspects. Um, but again, not sitting there and trying to micro analyze every single one of those things, especially if you're not shooting all the time. If you're shooting you know, a hundred arrows or so a day, and you're really and you're working with a coach to where you're really able to self-identify with mistakes that you're making, um, then then you're at a point where you can say, you know what, that last shot I spit one out three inches left. I I know I totally had a bunch of you know a bunch of inside pressure on that shot on my grip. You know, then you can look at it like that. But you know, it's not like every single shot I'm pulling back thinking. Oh man, I feel like I got a sixteenth extra pound on the inside of this grip. I better, I mean, because you're just going to start overlooking some of the basic things that you need in order to be a good shooter. Well, we have I have league tonight, so we'll see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but I, I try to shoot, you know, to to at least some extent every day. Just like if somebody's like, "Hey, go grab some chicken out of the freezer downstairs." <laughs> I'll go downstairs and I'll shoot 10 arrows or whatever, just to say that, I, that I'm, you know, I'm shooting every day, but at the same time, it's, it's not real practice. The results on a 10 yard shot on a Vegas face is, you know, you can be pretty pumped when you go downstairs and, and shoot a 28 X or 25 X 300 round, but then you get to the, to the indoor range and it's, it's not so good. Well, the other thing too, is if you're going, like I said, you're going down there and you shoot 10 arrows even if it's half the distance, the distance doesn't matter as much to me, but you know, it's all about, it's all about reps and, and the, um, the amount of time. I feel like when people go to a tournament or to a league night, you know, a big part of you not being able to, to shoot the kind of score that you want to is because you have to be honest with yourself. Are you going in, you know, if, if it takes you an hour and a half of to shoot a full round at league, uh, how much are you actually putting an hour and a half into just pulling your bow, picking it up, sitting it down? If that's not something that you're doing, it's just really hard to have those expectations on yourself of um, of being able to do that. It's no different than you know if you can have a person that could um, that could practice wrestling every day. They could sit there and kind of you know go downstairs and have a mat and 
you know, practice shooting in on a on a dummy a few times and, you know, kind of roll around a little bit and, you know, maybe they do it for 10 minutes, but you put someone in a three minute mat, you know, put them in a three minute full, full speed. It's totally different. I mean, you're, you're just not conditioned for it. So it's the same way. I mean, sneaking down to get some chicken out of the refrigerator and, <laughs> and shooting 10 arrows is not going to prepare you for league night. Maybe I need to just go get more chicken. That's what I would do. That's what I would do. I would say, babe, we're out of chicken. Uh, I'm going to have to go get some. And then after you've shot your first 300, 300 in, at the league or at the range, then send her a text and say, dang it, Costco's out of chicken. I'm going to have to go to high V and shoot you another round. That's what you're going to have to do. Yeah. That was funny. That you say that I was, uh, so when I shot that last, this tournament this past Sunday, um, the, the range was going to open to the public at noon. And I got done at like 1130 or something like that. So I was like, oh man, I can just hang out here for a little while longer. I'll just shoot some more. Well, then I, I, I don't tell my wife this. Uh, so I texted him. I was like, yeah, you know, there's a ton of shooters here. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be home, <laughs> you know, just cause I was going to kind of pull one over, pull one over on her and step there and shoot longer. And she goes, are you kidding me? We're supposed to do yada, 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 yada. I was like, okay, I lied. I'm coming home. <laughs> <laughs> Yep. Yep. That's pretty funny. But, uh, so one other question I want to ask if you got time. What I'm is not it? sure. Are yeah. we at? Okay. okay. Anyway. So one thing that I, I always notice, um, and it's probably because I'm short, which I can't do anything <laughs> about is. So when I, whenever I, I, I draw, come to my anchor, get my peep, I'm miles away from where I need my pen to settle. So I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm wasting valuable time with, you know, being steady or, you know, just having no lactic acid in my muscles and I'm fresh. I feel like I'm wasting a lot of time getting my pin on the target, letting it settle and then starting my, my shot execution. So it's, it seems like it's always no surprise that it's low, but it's always low, right? So I'm always lifting it up and to the left. Is there something that I could do in, I guess my pre-shot routine to kind of get it closer, but not really, make it all feel completely different. Yeah. So you're low right of the target most of the times once you kind of come into your peep. Yep. Well, some of that could be an indication of the fact that your foot position um, is actually setting up slightly that way. Um, and just the tension of your torso is kind of wanting you to go that way naturally. So, I would say um, one thing that you can do is try to slightly open up your front foot because what will happen is that'll that'll actually turn your torso just a little bit to where, you know, your whole triangle, so to speak, is moving left slightly. It's a lot like, you know, addressing a ball. There's times where golfers, as much as they feel really comfortable the way they step to the ball – they can just constantly hit shots that are off to the right of the target or off to the left of the target that aren't necessarily like a slice, um, you know, or a, you know, or a draw or anything like that. They're literally just a continual straight shot that's going that way because they aren't actually addressing the ball correctly. Um, so try slightly just opening your stance a little bit to where you're going to turn yourself it's actually one thing that um, that I do sometimes with students 
is just run them through a drill where they they raise their bow to the target, draw back, come to their anchor, look through their peep, and then close their eyes for about five to six seconds and then reopen their eyes just to see what direction their pin naturally gravitates to from the center of the spot. If it's always, you know, by the time you open your eyes, if you're always way left of the target, that's telling me that your torso is naturally wanting to go that way. And, you know, so you kind of adjust your your stance slightly so that that happens. So that's why um, when I work with a lot of my students, um, you know, I actually have tape the a target upside down on the ground, a bigger target, um, so I can trace their feet and just have them practice getting into that exact position all the time um, so that they're not fighting that. Um, a lot of times... If you're low, that just kind of comes probably from where you're first drawing back at the target. You know, I really like to raise my bow arm and actually I'm just looking directly at my pin and my scope and I put it right on the target. And then as I draw back, you know, I'm just, I'm literally raising my bow arm, putting it on the target and draw my release hand back while maintaining that on the target. And then once I go into my peep sight, it's there. So that, um, that draw cycle is actually really important. Um, I do have an article out there um, on the draw cycle, and I don't know what the heck I named it, but um, I had wrote it, I guess I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can post it somewhere, but um, it's pretty much just showing that process of raising the bow, putting it on the target, drawing the release hand back to the face, um, really without um, losing efficiency or coming to full draw on your way off the target. You know, all that stuff, like you said, is valuable time. Um, and that's why, you know, like these rounds that I'm practicing, my practice round, these are some of the details that you could look at. You know, you can mark the screen and just kind of see how far do I raise my bow each time and then pull back? You know, you start to, you know, if you start to overlay, which I've done in the past, you know, overlay these videos with yourself, you start to see how, how constant and consistent is the raise of the front arm, pointing it on the target, bringing the release hand directly straight back and not trying to do like a pushing and pulling motion. Um, and not like pushing the head forward, that sort of thing. Um, all that stuff is just kind of efficiency loss, and it makes you way less likely to actually get onto the target. And I think that's a big reason, too, why, you know, I don't shoot, um, you know, when I shoot target, I don't shoot heavy weight. I shoot lighter weight as well. You know, my indoor bow is, you know, about 56 pounds, I think, right now. Um so I just really want to be able to raise that bow arm, draw my release straight back till it stops and come over. I don't want to have to do any like push pull motion. Um, you know, for example, I don't, I, you know, I hate pushing and pulling to where I have to worry about my hips being in a different position or my head changing position, you know, and by shooting that lighter weight, uh, it allows me, uh, to do that. So I just found uh, this article here. Um, 
it's called smooth draw. So I'm gonna wonder where I should post this at. I need to post this somewhere. Well, I think you can go on the website, find it. Um, if not, you'll be able to find it pretty soon, but it more or less focuses on just um, raising the arm and going through the drawing motion. Maybe what I'll do is see if I can create a, a little slide or something for Instagram and post it on there. But I think if you focus on those two things, B, it'll help you out. Sweet. All right. Got lots to work on. You got anything funny to say? Uh, say something just, funny. Just just put me on the spot. I wasn't ready for that. <laughs> I know, it's part of your training. I failed you. I failed you. <laughs> well, you haven't. You keep you make you put smiles on a lot of people's faces, and uh, it's hilarious that you're still in the closet there with your wife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was the original intent. You know, I never. My hope was just like I have these funny things in my head. I'm like, oh, I wonder. If other people might think they're funny too. And then one day I was like, okay, I'm going to post one. Then I was like, no, I'm not going to do it. People are going to think I'm stupid. Then I did it. And we're like, oh, that's so funny. So I'm like, oh, okay, we'll, we'll keep this up. And, you know, good things have come from it. I find most of the stuff I post that I think's funny, people get weirded out about. And then everything I post that I don't think is funny, people are like, that's hilarious. It's like, what the <laughs> hell? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I guess just, it all. It all really came down to it's like I'm never going to see most of these people. So if they think I'm an idiot, then I'm never going to. You know who cares? <laughs> wow. Except for Dayton, you know, it was that was kind of a funny, kind of a funny story where, like, I, I had seen him on Instagram before, and we kind of knew each other through that. But we uh, it turned out our, our our daughters went to the same gymnastics school, and like he walked up, he's like, "Hey, dude, are you a fan of John Dudley?" I was like, "Yeah." I was like, "I know you." He's like, "I know you." <laughs> Yeah, now, and, we're, now we're best buds. And you look at your wife, and you look back at Dayton, and you're like, shh. Yeah, don't say anything, or I'm going to cut you. <laughs> don't ruin it for everybody else. <laughs> yeah, don't ruin it for everyone else, damn it. So if anyone sees um, Brad, <laughs> actually, this needs to be your next Photoshop. Brad, you're officially the godfather, like from old school. <laughs> like, we can't tell anybody that Brad is actually the godfather of the social butterfly. We can't let his alias out. He has to, uh, he has to just maintain his hidden identity. So we'll let you have that. Well, Good. I'd appreciate that. All right, dude. We got a, we got an hour and seventeen minutes into this sucker. Look at us. I got to go get some lunch in my belly because I didn't eat after my workout, and I feel like I'm getting hangry right now. I'm in the same boat. <laughs> All right. Well, appreciate you coming on, dude. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Don't leave. I want to chat to you after I end this, baby. But, uh, yeah, for everyone listening, uh, please uh, do me a favor. Uh, Killcliff has decided to launch the video um this friday of me and andy's hunt in france it's a really cool hunt um i really really like the video turned out awesome and uh they're going to be sharing it a few times killcliff posted it i reposted it um but and i know that the they're going to actually be posting the video on their youtube site or on their facebook channel um, so do us a favor and, uh, make sure you comment 
and let them know. It's easy to do. Just make a comment. Just say, you know, thanks for supporting the hunting community. Or if you have anything positive to say about that, um, I'm pretty dang pumped that Andy helped um, make this possible by kind of utilizing his ties there with Killcliff and I think it's a very very cool brand for us to have involved with our community because so many of us are you know really into fitness working out and I think it's an awesome product you know I haven't really got on a pedestal and and gave my sales pitch about it but I use it every day um, I really really like it so make sure you support that and I'm going to be posting that Friday or Friday they'll be posting it we'll be doing a few little teasers and a few little kind of trailers and stuff leading up to that so be sure to share them and post them ask that as a favor and then also um, this Friday I'll be at the Western Expo from uh, 4 to 5 I'll be on stage um, with the the Gritty Bowman or with Brian and um, I don't know if anyone else will jump in. Not quite sure. And then from 5 to 7 until the show ends, um, I'll be at the Hoyt booth uh, for hanging out, meet and greet, um, that sort of thing. So make sure you come by then. And other than that, I'm going to be doing some culinary classes out in Salt Lake City, getting some of my Chef Boyardee skills rounded up. i got to be able to to run with the big dogs if I ever get challenged to a knock to four contest. So trying to keep up, trying to keep my, my knives sharp. So appreciate everybody. And, uh, hopefully you liked it, like this podcast with Brad and, uh, I'll get it posted for you ASAP. Knock on everybody. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock on lifestyle clothing knockonarchery.com